Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4 to verse 10. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. We need to keep practising our liturgy. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. It's Wednesday and we're continuing to work on some content that's particularly relevant to the New Testament intro class. Last week, Richard preached to us from Revelation. And this week and next, Claire and I are presenting some brief insights from 1 Peter even though Brian doesn't have time to squeeze that into this semester's syllabus. And it also gives us a chance this week and next to think a bit more about Christian identity, another subject that's close to Brian's heart. It's week eight at college, and perhaps you've got friends and family already nagging you to find out if you've yet discerned your Christian vocation. If you haven't, that's okay. 60 to 80% of Ridley students uh, often remain unsure what their ministries might end up looking like. Some of you might be in your third or your fourth year of study and still not sure how God might best use you. Some people would look at me and say, he's been a student since 1995 and he still doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) Next week, Claire is preaching about those of us who are called into various kinds of ministries, the kinds of roles where we might take on a title like willing under-shepherds. But today we're looking at an even more foundational sense of what it means to be a Christian believer and the vocation of all Christian believers. And our passage gives a really simple and confusing answer. Every Christian believer is a priest. No, it doesn't mean that you've all automatically been enrolled into the ordination stream. It turns out that there's a bit of potential confusion between the language we use for modern church positions and the Bible's language. And indeed, we'll see that today's passage also implies that every Christian believer is a missionary, although this doesn't then automatically enrol the entire college cohort into the global mission community. But I'm sure if you ask Claire nicely, she'd be pleased to see you after lunch today. (laughs) 
So we need to look carefully at today's passage and start to unravel any of the confusion there as we see the basic vocation of any Christian believer is a whole lot simpler in a whole lot more confusing language than we might have imagined. Last year's AFL men's grand final, whatever, three days later, John Piper's famous book on world mission was released in its fourth edition. (laughs) And that latest edition still opens with the same words that have regularly struck readers. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And so he launches into a discussion of worship with these words. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Now, you might not regularly think of yourself as a missionary, but hopefully you might often at least think of yourself as a worshipper. And our author seeks to remind us just how closely mission and worship are aligned, as well as the language of priests. And our passage today makes that same fundamental point as John Piper. Being a Christian is based on worship from which flow some priestly and missionary implications. Everything we say and everything we do contributes to God's mission in his world, both from his worship and for his worship. So let's unpack Peter's instructions to his Christian readers. Some churchgoers don't really like Peter's first letter. Others really like Peter's first letter. It's about trusting God, particularly in a society that looks askance at Christians. Some of us will find it hard going. And so in some churches and some households, it's on high rotation. In other churches and other households, it's not read quite as frequently as other parts of Scripture. One reason that people can struggle with this letter is because it's full of Old Testament imagery. If you're looking at your Bible right now, you'll see that in nearly every column there's an indent where Peter interrupts himself with some Old Testament quote, and you can see that happens in each of the five chapters. Some people don't like it because Peter's argument can be quite detailed and dense, and even the part we had read this morning is a little bit like that. Peter seems to keep switching between Jesus and between believers. It feels like the even-numbered verses are about Jesus, he's a living stone and chosen by God. Then the odd-numbered verses are about we who follow Jesus. We too are living stones and chosen by God. And as keen as I am to teach about Jesus and his centrality and mission, this week I want us to focus on the verses that talk more about us. They give us a good sense of our Christian identity and something of our Christian job description. And this will be valuable for us who are thinking about who we are, whether we're wrestling with questions of formal vocation or not. And these verses are valuable to us as we take care of others in our ministry care, whatever their questions. Much of the world continues to struggle with those questions of identity. It's all that rage to find yourself and to define yourself. And we find that it's not a new problem because the Christian believers in Peter's day were wrestling with exactly the same questions. So verse 4 that we're not spending much time on tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Again, Jesus is chosen by God even if he's rejected by the world. And then verse 5 moves to make some extraordinary statements about us. And if you keep reading the rest of Peter's letter, you'll find that believers too are chosen by God and rejected by the world. Perhaps you're familiar with the imagery in the first half of verse 5. Like other parts of the New Testament, Christian believers are described as the building which God dwells. 
We are like living stones built into a spiritual house. And this is where we're not suddenly going to break into tabernacle building, much to my own surprise. But in the second half of that verse, we find some rarer claims. Not only are we a building in which God dwells, but God is preparing us believers to be a holy priesthood. Now, I don't know about you, but my low church Baptist upbringing doesn't know what to do with such words. What does Peter mean that we're all priests? Hairs going up on the back of my neck, worries that my parents might be listening in and so on. And it's simply unfortunate that English uses the word priests here because Peter doesn't mean that we're all ordained in some Anglican sense. No, Peter has a different sense of priesthood in mind for us. And like the rest of the letter and the rest of the New Testament, we'll understand more of what Peter means here as we grow in our familiarity with the Old Testament beforehand. The Old Testament temple was staffed by special ordained priests and their job descriptions can be boiled down fairly simply. They had to teach the Israelites how to worship God correctly and they had to model how to worship God correctly. They had to speak and to live appropriately. They led the people in what we might call verbal worship and lifestyle worship. And lots of the Old Testament then focuses on and unpacks these two elements, the correct speaking and the correct living in the presence of the holy God who created the universe. And again, that was a special vocation to be such a priest for only a select few. You had to be a member of one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, and within that tribe you had to be a male descendant of Moses' brother Aaron, exclusive club. And yet even within the Old Testament we find that those specialised men are already serving as models for others. The priests presented verbal worship and lifestyle worship so that the rest of the Israelites could see what pleased God. And then that was also to become a model that Israel as a whole could copy. The Israelite nation was to do the same thing as priests before the wider world. The Israelite nation was to present verbal worship and lifestyle worship so that people from the wider nations could see what pleased God. We can see this when we read their Old Testament job description. Some people know the verses, other people don't know the verses, but these are crucial verses at the start of Exodus 19 where God adopts the Israelites and he gives them this language. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And again, that whole nation is to speak and to live in such a way that their worship will attract yet others to know God and to then receive the blessings that come from knowing him. And then when we turn to this passage in the New Testament, Peter takes and extends Israel's job description to all Christian believers. We, largely non-Jewish believers, lay people, men and women, Anglicans and Baptists and everybody else, are being built into a holy priesthood. And being God's priests involves a simple task. If you're an Old Testament priest, your primary task was to offer physical sacrifices, a sheep or a bull, some grain or incense. And we New Testament priests are told in the rest of Peter's verse that our purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's easy to take a phrase like that and then to interpret it in whatever way we feel like. I have to mow the lawn at my church every couple of months and I might catch myself thinking, 
here I am taking time out of my day, failing to mark the exegesis that are piling up on my desk, exerting physical exercise. I'm doing this for the sake of my church. Therefore, this qualifies as a spiritual sacrifice. Now, I'm all in favour of us serving churches in that kind of way, but I don't think that's what Peter has in mind. Rather, Peter again goes through that odd, even cycle again. So verses 6, 7 and 8 talk some more about how Jesus has been chosen by God, even if rejected by the world. And then verses 9 and 10 return to talking about us. And it's here that Peter clearly takes and extends that Old Testament job description because now it's all Christians, even those with a Gentile background, who are given this identity. But you Christians are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We are invited to be the showpiece in God's treasure collection in the sight of the wider world. We are on display to the wider nations who will see how we speak and how we act, who will see through us what it is that pleases God. So just as Israel was appointed to be God's royal priesthood, so we Christians are appointed to that same vocation. I wonder if you've thought about that before. If you're not enrolled in the Anglican Institute, have you ever considered that you're still one of God's priests? And again, that keeps raising questions about what we're expected to do. And the good news is we've already heard much of the answer from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean a special kind of ordination for everybody. But we do have to think about how we speak and how we act in ways that show the wider world what pleases God. We're called to a full-time vocation of verbal worship and lifestyle worship. And we don't just have to guess that we're transferring this in some convenient way from the Old Testament. Peter spells it out abundantly for us in verse 9. You Christians are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There we go. There's our direct call to verbal worship and a line that explains what those spiritual sacrifices look like. If you're not sure what we should praise God for, here's Peter feeding us a script. We might proclaim any of God's mighty acts. We might particularly praise God for calling us out of darkness and into light. We might use verse 10 to celebrate that once we were not a special group of people, but now we are God's people. There was a time when we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. These may not be the words you first think to use, but I hope you've got this kind of story to tell. I hope as you work through the Bible and as you study carefully, you might discover just how many different images of salvation there are that you might use in conversation. Once you were an outcast from God, but now you've been adopted into God's family. Once you were an alien immigrant in the population, but now you've been awarded citizenship among God's people. Once you were a lonely, isolated nobody, but now you're built up as an integral component of God's church. Perhaps at morning tea you might share with each other what kind of descriptions best help you express what God's done in your life. There's nothing more complex waiting to confront us in today's passage, no secret Greek insights, no further things that we need to do, just the plain and sometimes difficult statement that we've just seen. To be a believer is to declare what God has done. 
We should be on the lookout for ways to declare God's greatness. Our verbal worship along with our lifestyle worship is the basis for God's priestly mission to the world expressed through every one of his people. And there are heaps of settings in which we might express such verbal worship. I have a roster of things that I pray for my kids. And on Monday nights, my prayer is that they'll wonder at God's creativity in his world. I pray that they'll look around and notice God's actions in creation and salvation. And I pray not only that they'll notice this, but that they'll come up with some word or words to express their marvel at God's magnificence. I want them to be able to name this kind of feeling. And then I pray that they'll take time to name this fascination not just for themselves but to God himself and to thank him for it and that they might then find opportunities and courage to proclaim such enchantment in the hearing of other humans, both those who already know God and those who are still working him out. This is their job description as members of God's royal priesthood and so I pray that God will continue to equip them for that vocation. And, of course, Peter wants us to match our verbal worship with his lifestyle worship That's really obvious if we look a little further back in the letter or if we look further forward in the letter. Even immediately after today's reading, we catch a glimpse of that. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And as we read through all of Peter's chapters, we can see examples of the kinds of Christian behaviour that were making a splash among the unbelievers of his day. And the letter keeps reminding us of the centrality both of verbal worship and lifestyle worship. I wonder how comfortable you are in small, everyday declarations of God's praises. You might be well trained in the school of count your blessings. It's a great thing to do and it's true that we'll continue to be constantly surprised at God's persistent goodness. And don't just stop once you've done the counting part. Remember to tell God that you're grateful for these blessings, whether they're his mighty acts or his small kindnesses. And Peter invites us as God's royal priesthood to keep looking for ways to spread such glorious gossip. Are there ways that we might tell other believers and even unbelievers of what we catch God doing? Take a moment to think about ways that you could do this. I've already outlined one of my weekly prayers for my kids. I don't keep much of a social media presence, but I do try to ensure that there's at least an equal number of posts drawing attention to God and his creativity as there are posts drawing attention to my deeds. Autumn's a great time for capturing some of God's visual works around his world. When I have guests over for dinner, how much am I telling them about or even asking them about what God has been doing this week? How much I'd love to be like one of the four-year-old kids at church. He both rightly understands God's place in the world and his own confidence as part of God's creation. He unashamedly walks around the playground at childcare and just makes matter-of-fact statements like, God made this flower. He's not trying to evangelise. He's not trying to win some four-year-old philosophical debate. It's just an announcement of how the world works. And he says it bluntly and clearly. I suspect many of us have capitulated to the politically correct topics of conversation. Apparently religion's a private matter, one which we might even be reticent to raise in our own homes. But Peter invites us to find ways to declare God's praises because we are God's royal priests 
and we declare the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. I used to look askance at Christians who too flippantly said, praise God in every second sentence. Some of them try to sound a little bit more pious and they do it in Hebrew, hallelujah. But when you walk the streets of the Middle East, Muslims and Christians alike do this all the time. Every second sentence is punctuated with the Arabic equivalent. Alhamdulillah, praise God. And sure, I know we could end up doing this too flippantly and reactively without any sense of what we're doing, but I wonder if the phrase is onto something. I wonder if I need to become like some of these other people. And I wonder what difference it might make to us and to our world, to our conversations, if we did habitually say thanks be to God throughout the week as well as here in chapel, for small things as well as for obvious large things. The passage this morning is one more call to worship, indeed to a vocation of worship. It calls us to be royal priests who worship in such a way that others are caught up in God's worship as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.